0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 23rd. Up until this election, I really thought that I had heard all the stories about Joe Biden. The president-elect has been in public life for decades. He's been in politics for literally 50 years. We've talked about him so extensively during the campaign, in this podcast, so I thought I had a pretty good grasp on his life. But then I listened to this episode of the podcast Presidential, hosted by my colleague Lillian Cunningham, and I realized that there was so much that I didn't know. Insights about what shaped Biden in his childhood, what formed his view of the world, and what kind of president he's likely to be. That's why I wanted to share that episode with you today.
1: My fellow Americans, I sought this office to restore the soul of America— It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, see each other again, listen to each other again. And to make progress, we have to stop treating our opponents as our enemies. They are not our enemies, they are Americans. They are Americans.
2: When Joe Biden was a young man, He was asked once what he intended to do with his life. His answer? I plan to be president of the United States. Well, it happened. But he probably didn't imagine it would happen this way. He probably didn't imagine that despite being one of the youngest senators in American history, he would become the oldest man to assume the presidency. He probably didn't imagine that the young woman he'd marry, whose mother was the one who asked him that question about what he wanted to be, that she would no longer be by his side when the day came. And he probably didn't imagine that the year he finally won the presidential election would be a year marked by such deep political polarization, by a deadly pandemic, a running mate who would become the first female vice president, a Democratic Party that would worry whether he could carry it into the future, and by a Republican incumbent who would challenge the integrity of the voting system and mount legal challenges against his victory. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer? of power after the election. Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots. This is a major fraud in our nation. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. On Election Day, November 3rd, 2020, I got an email in my inbox from a presidential listener who lives in Indiana. She was wondering if I planned to watch the sunrise the next morning at the Lincoln Memorial, as I had done for the Lincoln episode four years ago. But this time, she was wondering if I would go there and reflect on the presidential results. Well, that wasn't possible this election. As of sunrise on November 4th, I was still in the dark. The country was still in the dark about who it was who would become the next president. Between the large number of mail-in ballots because of the pandemic and the tight races playing out in several states, the results of this election took longer than usual to reveal themselves. It was perhaps a fitting end to the 2020 presidential race. This was a race full of division, not just two different candidates, Democrat Joe Biden and Republican Donald Trump, and their two different visions for the nation. It was also a race that was divided between a feeling of being loud and crowded, and then a feeling of being very quiet and lonely. The initial field of Democratic candidates was large, and the voters were animated, and the news was relentless. But then, because of COVID, the debate halls were empty, the conventions were virtual, and the front doors of homes across the country had no volunteers show up to knock on them. When the final electoral map filled in days after the election, it showed a country deeply at odds over the future that it wants and the person it thinks should lead us there. It showed a country that elected Joe Biden despite still being in the depths of division, not because the country had risen past that. No, this is not the way that Biden could ever have imagined finally attaining the presidency, but... These are the twists and turns of American history. The road is long and it is rarely smooth. But it has once again found its way to this moment to a new presidency and to a new presidential episode to usher that presidency in. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post. And this is officially the forty-fifth episode of Presidential.
1: I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow.
2: What your country can do for you, a date
0: which will live in infamy.
2: This episode is about Joe Biden, the young boy growing up in industrial America after World War II, the young man winning a Senate seat in the Vietnam era, then experiencing a deep personal tragedy, the older man serving decades as a Democratic senator, and then as vice president, and now as the next president of the United States. Just as with the Trump episode four years ago, this episode comes out after the election results are in, but before Biden has assumed office. So we obviously can't cover his legacy as president, but what we can and will dive into is his biography, his personal and political story, and we'll examine how his path and America's path have converged this point. Our guide for this episode is an incredible journalist, Evan Osnos. Evan Osnos is a staff writer at The New Yorker, and he's a longtime chronicler of American politics. He has extensively profiled and reported on Joe Biden over the years, and he's now the author of a big, insightful biography that was just released called Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. So, all right, let's do this. Evan, thank you so much for being here.
1: Great to be with you.
2: So let's start way back at the beginning of Joe Biden's story, November 20th, 1942. What kind of family is Joe Biden born into? their values, their wealth, their temperament.
1: Yeah, Joe Biden was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania to a working class family. His father, interestingly enough, had money when he was younger. He came from a family that had made and lost and made and lost a fortune over the years. And in some ways, his father carried a bit of that with him in the closet in their house. He had an old polo mallet, and it was this kind of strange artifact of this fortune that had gone away. And his mother, Jean Finnegan, was a somewhat fierce presence in Joe Biden's life. She was a devout Catholic, and she was also one who was going to fiercely defend their family. And there was one moment that lingers in the family memory when... There was a nun who was making fun of Joe Biden's stutter at one point in school. And Gene Finnegan went down and told that nun, if you ever treat my son like that again, I'm going to come back and pull that bonnet off your head. His mom played another particularly important role in their lives because she had this very strong belief in status, but not in quite the way you might imagine. What she said to the kids as her Joe's Biden's sister, Valerie, told me, nobody is better than you and you are no better than anybody else. And that idea became this kind of dogma within the family, and it really defined how they saw themselves. It meant that they were particularly alert to any moments of disrespect, um, but they were also walking around with this sense that they didn't really deserve to lord over anybody else.
2: When he was 10 years old, Biden's family, his parents, and then he and his three younger siblings, they all moved south about 150 miles from Scranton, Pennsylvania to Wilmington, Delaware. So as he's growing up, a young kid, what sort of traits did the young Joe Biden exhibit, you know, even from that early age, that start to give us some clues about the person he'd become?
1: As a kid, he was this combination of sort of daring and then also a little bit insecure. I mean, he was known around the neighborhood for being willing essentially to do anything that you dared him to do. There was one famous case in which somebody said, hey, Joey, why don't you run between the wheels of that slow moving truck that's driving down the street? And he did it and somehow did not get squashed and came out the other side and it was sort of fed this legend around the neighborhood but at the same time he was defined most of all by the fact that he had a really debilitating stutter and his nickname in school was Joe Impedimenta because on the first day of Latin class he couldn't get out the words he had an impediment he said to me once he said look i i couldn't speak and it was terrible when he wrote about it later he said it felt as if he was walking around with a dunce cap on his head I think it's easy to imagine him telling stories about the stutter as a kind of political prop, except that if you look closely, you find that it was a really big of his life and his upbringing. He would recite the Declaration of Independence and recite Irish poetry in the mirror until he could have confidence with the words coming out of his mouth. And he figured out these little shortcuts in life, things that he could do to avoid the problems of the stutter. He knew, for instance, that if he initiated a conversation before somebody else did, then he could be a little bit in control of it, and he wouldn't be caught flat-footed and vulnerable. So as he was walking up to somebody's house when he used to, you know, deliver newspapers, he would say, how about those Mets? How about those Yankees? In his own head, just getting ready to ask them a question so that he could have a conversation on his own terms.
2: Having gone through every presidency for this podcast, this story feels pretty familiar in a lot of ways, I'd say. I mean, not the stuttering in particular, but so many presidents had childhoods that seem to be defined by some kind of struggle or disadvantage.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah.
2: And what I find fascinating is, in so many cases, it's not just that they were able to persevere, but that these things we might think of as setbacks actually accelerated their personal drive in some profound way.
1: Yeah. I think... In effect, the experience of mastering that stutter had a sort of embedded energy in it. And it it was like a slingshot that flung him forward in his ambitions because he realized, okay, if I can do that, then what else can I do? And he ended up running for junior class president in high school. He became the president of the class. Then he was the president of the senior class. And he began to carry himself like somebody who was in control of not just his mouth, but also the audience. And he loved it. He loved the experience of watching the effect he could have on people when he spoke. And he started to talk about the idea of getting into government, getting into politics. He didn't know any senators. He didn't have any experience of politics. It's not like he grew up in a particularly political family. But he saw it as a place where he could start to use this instrument that he had mastered. One of the great accounts of Joe Biden's life was by the late writer Richard Ben Kramer, who wrote in this book, What It Takes, that the distinctive feature of Joe Biden was that he could always, as Kramer put it, he could always see it. He could see what it was in his mind's eye that he wanted to do. And then he would just pursue it with a kind of furious intensity. And that became one of the features of his life, this essentially stubborn unwillingness to give up in the face of reasonable, almost overwhelming challenges.
2: So initially was the allure of politics for Biden kind of just the thrill of that performative part, you know, the mastering of something that had been an insecurity for him? Or did it seem like he also had a set of deep-seated political convictions that were animating him?
1: Well, I mean, he he had certain elements of an emerging political philosophy that came partly from his father and from his mother. I mean, his father first fixing boilers in people's homes and businesses, and then he was a car salesman and his father carried with them this this very sort of strong sense of the dignity of work and partly because he'd been subject to the indignity of it. There was one moment that Joe Biden never forgot when his father was at a party for his car dealership and the owner of the car dealership in a little moment, a stunt, took a bucket of silver dollars and tossed them out on the dance floor in order to watch his salesman kind of scurry around and pick them up. And big Joe Biden, the father, was just incredibly offended by that and wouldn't do it. And he grabbed his wife's hand and walked out of there and ended up getting fired for it. And I think Joe Biden grew up with this sense that there is this inextricable relationship between work and status and self-respect and having a sense of meaning in your life. And I think that was the first, the first little sprout of a political idea beyond just personal ambition.
2: So Biden heads off to college at the University of Delaware. This is the early 1960s. Is he a young man on a mission at that point? Or despite dabbling in student government and thinking about politics, is this someone who's still very much figuring out his place in the world and who he wants to be?
1: So Joe Biden was a kind of flamboyantly terrible student. He wrote in his memoir uh, and in writing in the third person in this particular sentence, he said, Joe Biden wasn't hitting the library on many Saturday nights. And there's something in his slightly sort of bluff post-war American Posture that was a bit of an act. I mean, he was a football player, not the greatest football player, but enough that it was his encompassing identity. And he became this very much a kind of walking representation of the generation from which he emerged, which was, we call it the silent generation. And it was defined very much by coming of age in this post-war American period of prosperity, which, after all, we have to remember, was really only available to white males, largely. And so Joe Biden was coming of age at a time when there was this sense, this very high trust in government and a belief that government properly applied could improve your lives. And I think that became part of, for him, the seduction of politics and why he gravitated to it. And then there was this other thing going on that was so important, which is when Joe Biden was in college, the civil rights movement was gathering steam and he was in Delaware, which is this really interesting place in the geography of race because it is almost literally suspended between north and south. And he played a sort of bit part in some of these desegregation protests in Wilmington. There were efforts to desegregate a restaurant and a movie theater, and he was kind of there on the edges of it, but it, it wasn't at the center of his life.
2: He then goes off to law school at Syracuse University, but he doesn't seem to be the most studious student there either. What do you think we should take from the fact that he wasn't a great student?
1: Well, I think it's just not the way he's wired. He was not a kind of natural bookish person. Partly because of the stutter and partly because of his own sense of his strengths and weaknesses in the classroom, he has always hated reading out loud. That's very hard for him. And even well into his political career, he avoided teleprompters as much as he could because it was more difficult. He preferred speaking off the cuff. And that actually could then translate into a kind of charismatic speech. He said to himself at one point, that he learned that he loved the experience of persuading people through his own words. He could look into a crowd, even as a young man, and he could see who was paying attention and who was persuaded and who was skeptical. And he would focus on the skeptic and he would try to figure out if he could turn that person to his side.
2: So this is probably as good a place as any to stop and ask you the classic question that I've asked many biographers of all the presidents. Imagine I'm being set up on a blind date with Joe Biden. And the point is, I know nothing about him. But Evan, here you are. You know him really well. Tell me what I should expect. You know, give me some insight into who really is is this person I'm about to meet?
1: I think you'll find that the young Joe Biden is extraordinarily confident. He started telling people, even by his junior year in college, that he wanted to be the president of the United States. On his first date with his late wife, Nelia Hunter, he told her mother, in answer to the question of what do you plan to do with your life, well, I plan to be president of the United States, he added sort of helpfully. I mean, he really sensed that he was pretty good at this. And this meaning being a young up and comer in America. And I mean, he, to, a, to be a white male coming of age in Delaware in 1960 was to win a kind of cosmic lottery. And he was riding that. And yet at the same time, and there was something about him, even as a young man that was a little bit prematurely middle-aged. I mean, he was not a member of the emerging counterculture at all. Later when he met Jill Biden, she said she didn't quite know what to make of this person who didn't have sideburns, didn't have bell-bottoms like the other people she had dated. Here he was wearing a sport coat and a necktie. He was a little bit like a man out of time. And I think part of that was because he had this somewhat prematurely evolved sense of purpose and that he was going places and he started to carry himself a bit like an adult even before he was one, even though that still had within it something of a bit of a kind of swaggering college football player. In the course of my own research on him over the years, I have often asked people, What don't I know about Joe Biden in the sense that how is he different in private than he is in public? And it's very rare in my experience of reporting on people in politics to get the answer that I so often got, which is there's really not any difference there. He is actually more or less the same person in private than he is in public. It's this combination, this slightly fragile combination of confident at some moments and insecure at others and most of all, he is just intensely interested in the experience of other people, and he's constantly gravitating to that. And, you know, he more or less interrogates everybody he meets to understand where do they come from? Where do, what are they about? What do they care about? And some of that is that it's a political skill, but it's a pretty deeply held feeling of his that that's what it means to be a person and to be a person in politics, especially.
2: You mentioned Nelia Hunter. So, Nelia and Joe get married, he finishes law school at Syracuse, and then they move back to Delaware. What's the life that they start crafting for themselves? You know, it's not immediately in politics.
1: He first starts working at a corporate law firm doing kind of conventional business work and then makes a different kind of choice and goes off and becomes a public defender and was working on cases particularly involving a lot of black defendants in Wilmington at a time when it was still very much a tense place around race. And that began to form some of his political identity. He then ran for the county council. That was his first... Job, But within about five minutes of getting on the county council, he was already planning for something bigger. And in this case, the the bigger option for him was almost ludicrously audacious. And that was to run for the United States Senate. He was at that point 29 years old. He was too young by law to even take the seat. Uh, he would have to wait until he was 30 to be sworn in. And he was running against this figure who was a sort of colossus in Delaware politics, Kale Boggs. He had had every senior office in the state. He was a World War II vet who'd been in in government for 25 years there. And Joe Biden was really nobody. And people involved in his campaign at the time remember that they did a poll and he was trailing by 50 points. And the campaign was a pretty simple little threadbare operation. It was Joe Biden and his wife, Nelia, and their three little kids. And his sister Val was the campaign manager and his brothers were raising money for him. And they would go around the state and he would go anywhere accept any invitation.
2: And was Nelia playing any role in pushing him toward politics? Was she the opposite? Was she someone who was just kind of reluctantly going along with it?
1: Nelia was a natural political talent in her own way. She wasn't drawn to politics personally. She hadn't studied it. But She turned out to be his greatest surrogate on the stump. She would go out and give speeches on his behalf and was incredibly effective at it. And so they were a powerful duo, these two kind of elbowing their way into politics. I mean, they had this, by all accounts, very intense relationship. Just it sounds to sort of mawkish to say it this way, but they, it really was this love at first sight. They were joined at the hip more or less from the moment they met. And she came from a family in upstate New York. They were a kind of economically successful family. They owned a big popular diner up there. So she didn't carry some of the same sense of insecurity about being from a working-class family quite the same way that Joe Biden did. She was a a source of some solace, of some stability, and, and she just had tremendous confidence in him. And I think that gave him some of the thrust to go forward and imagine running for this office in a way that was sort of audacious at the time. And it was a kind of photogenic arrangement. Here was this young, sort of beautiful little family going around talking about a new day in politics. And you remember, this was 1972 in which you had Nixon actually riding this Republican landslide to victory. And so the idea of being a Democrat coming in was a pretty bold thing to be. And Biden presented himself as the voice of a new generation. He had ads that ran in the paper that said, Joe Biden understands what's happening now. And if you read the press coverage from that period, they really described him as this kind of luminous young figure coming into the Delaware political scene. And nobody really thought he was going to win, but they thought he might have a future. And then lo and behold, he was able to squeak out a victory by just about 3000 votes. And nobody was more surprised, frankly, than the Biden family that they actually won.
2: Election day was November 7th, 1972. Two weeks later, Biden turned 30 years old. He had pulled off what seemed like an impossible victory. And he was now about to become the youngest senator of the incoming Congress.
1: After Joe Biden won that Senate campaign, he and his wife were sort of marveling at The fact of it. And in fact, he said to her at one point, here we are. We have this family that we've made. Somehow we won this race for the Senate. Everything is going so well. And he added, it can't last. There's just no way it can last. And there's something about that, obviously, that's kind of eerie in retrospect.
2: Just a few weeks later, Joe Biden went down to Washington, D.C. He went with his sister Valerie and they were getting things ready for him to join Congress in the new year, get his office set up there. It was the week before Christmas. And while they were there, the phone rang.
1: It was his brother in Delaware, and Biden actually sensed something even before he was on the phone. His brother asked to talk to Valerie first, and Valerie went white, and the color drained from her face, and and Joe Biden could sense something. And he said to her in that moment, she's dead, isn't she? He didn't know anything about the accident, yet he just sensed the gravity of the look on her face.
2: Nelia had been driving with their three children to pick out a Christmas tree. They were on their way back when a truck hit their Chevy station wagon, and it sent their car tumbling over an embankment.
1: It was a devastating accident, and Nelia and the baby Naomi were killed instantly. And the two boys, Hunter and Bo, who were two and three years old at the time, were both hospitalized with their injuries. At the scene of the crash, the police and some of the witnesses later described that there was campaign literature from the Biden campaign sort of scattered all over the road.
2: Because their car was still full of all the election flyers.
1: It was such a precipitous drop in their family story. I mean, the sheer disaster of going from the very top to the very bottom was completely unmooring. I mean, he thought about suicide. He wrote of it later that he had been raised to believe in a benevolent God, a merciful God. And at that point, suddenly the church felt to him completely useless. He got nothing from this pretty deep faith tradition that he'd grown up with. And he was angry. In fact, he and his brother used to go out at night when the boys were asleep in their hospital room and and his sister would be there with them. And Joe Biden and his brother would go out into Wilmington and, and look to start fights. I mean, they would literally go looking for outlets for this rage that he was carrying with him. And he didn't have any way of processing it.
2: Grief or tragedy is another one of those things that came up Over and over in presidents' stories. And obviously, on a very personal level, tragedy like that just completely transformed Joe Biden's life. But I think also about, you know, other presidents we've seen who've experienced grief like that. You know, someone like Franklin Pierce, whose son died in a tragic. Train accident right before he took office. And by all accounts, Pierce was just completely ineffective as president because of it. I mean, he was just flattened by that grief in a way that sapped all of his political will. So, I mean, I'm curious if that happens to Biden at all, too. You know, is it? not just that personally he's mourning and uh, a different Joe Biden because of that tragedy but does he also enter the senate that january as just a totally different and less animated politician than he would have been
1: at first Biden was was really uncomfortable with how his tragedy was being Interpreted in politics because suddenly he was being called upon to play a role that he didn't really want to play. It was the role of the kind of noble widower who was somehow going to be kind of supernaturally gracious and a a portrait of resilience. And that's really not how he felt. You know, he was undone and he didn't know if he could take his seat in the Senate at all. And it was later that. Some of the older members of the Senate, including somebody who had been through a terrible experience, who had lost his wife and, and children, said to him, you need to work because if you don't get to work, if you don't find purpose now, you're never going to recover from this. And that's one of the reasons why he came to the Senate. He said, OK, I'll try it for six months and see what happens. And he would go home every night. One of the reasons that he became known for this kind of cliche of Amtrak Joe, who was riding the trains all the time, is actually for a pretty serious reason. It's because he was a single father with two boys back in Delaware, and he had to get home to them every night. And as a result, that meant he was not a player in Washington in quite the same way he would have been if he was in DC socializing every night and glad handing in quite the same way. It, It put him in a slightly different category. He wanted to be Henry Kissinger. He wanted to be the great foreign policy hand. That's how he thought of himself. And instead, people began to come to him and see him as a kind of touchstone for tragedy and resilience. And he had a decision to make. He could either brush that away or he could make it a part of himself. And he made it a part of himself. But he he was slow to do it. He, he very rarely talked, actually, about the accident in the years that followed. And it was only later as he kind of matured a little bit and slowed down and began to understand that that's what people needed from him, that he, that he began to, to talk about it.
2: A few years into his time as senator, Joe Biden's brother Frank set him up on a blind date with a woman who Frank knew from college, but whom Joe Biden had never met. She was born with the name Jill Jacobs. But two years later, in 1977, she would become Jill Biden. She finally said yes to marry Joe Biden after several proposals from him, I'll note. Um, But all the while, you know, he continued on as senator they got married, but he continued to live in Delaware and would commute to Capitol Hill. So focusing on that Senate career, um as as he moves through the years as a senator, describe for me, Evan, how it was that Biden would work his political will. You know, what were his go-to political tools? Would he cajole people? Would he threaten people? You know, what were his strengths and weaknesses as a politician who was trying to get things done in the Capitol?
1: Like a lot of politicians, his greatest skill was also, I think, his greatest weakness. And that's that he was able to find common ground with just about anybody. And that meant that he was, for instance, the only person in Congress who gave eulogies at the funerals for John McCain and also the Democrat Frank Lautenberg and also Strom Thurmond, the former segregationist. So he was this interesting figure who bridged all of these divides. But the downside of that was people didn't know where he really stood. What were his core commitments, they'd say? What, what do you really believe in? From Joe Biden's perspective, that was not a contradiction. He thought that you could be, as a senator, with one person on Monday and somebody else on Tuesday, That's how he thought of politics, that it was this constant accounting of interests. He prided himself in the Senate on being the guy who was friends with everybody. As a political matter, that was partly a reflection of his district. He was coming from this place in which people were very much divided between Republicans and Democrats, often inside the same person, meaning you would split your ticket. There were a lot of people who were centrists, either left or right, but They didn't want to see their senator being too far out front on any one issue. In fact, at one point, Biden received a high rating from a progressive organization because they were celebrating his work on civil rights as a candidate and also his opposition to the war in Vietnam. And he complained about it. Because he said, this is making it harder for me, actually, when you celebrate me as a progressive. I think of myself as a centrist, as a moderate Democrat. And so he found himself in the curious position of sort of bridling against the acclaim he was getting from the left. And then there was this sharp turn in his politics, kind of a fateful turn, when He had run for office supporting civil rights and integration, and he found himself on the receiving end of a lot of criticism by particularly white parents in the suburbs of his district in Delaware who said, we're not supportive of court-ordered busing, and- There was a a, in particular one meeting, a kind of fateful meeting in which he just got hammered at a town hall for taking that position. And he flipped on it and became an opponent of court of court ordered busing and became really in many ways one of the Democrats most vocal critics of court orders to send African-American students into white schools.
2: So Biden was obviously someone who really wanted to build his reputation on bridging divides and finding compromise. But I imagine he must have had some political enemies, right? Who, who did he not get along with?
1: I think for a long time, he prided himself on being a, somebody in Washington who didn't really have very many enemies. And that changed partly because of how he mishandled the Clarence Thomas nomination hearings to the Supreme Court. He was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in 1991 when Clarence Thomas was nominated. And Biden found himself torn between these different instincts. One was he saw himself as a supporter of a African-American nominee to the Supreme Court. He also saw himself as somebody who could treat Republicans with respect, make sure that they didn't feel like they were being railroaded in a Democratic-led committee. And as a result, that left him, in a sense, underprepared to, to give Anita Hill, who was accusing Clarence Thomas of serious sexual harassment, the full hearing and the fair hearing that she deserved. There were two other accusers in that case, and he didn't allow them to speak in person in the hearing. He, he allowed them to give testimony in writing, but it didn't have the same effect. And I, there were a lot of women who came to believe that Joe Biden had done not just Anita Hill' a disservice, but really women' a disservice by not allowing a full hearing in that moment, and I think that that shook him a bit because he wasn't accustomed to being being perceived as as doing something unjust. Um, and so you you began to see him start to focus on trying to rebuild his reputation in that period. It was one of the reasons that he became one of the authors of the Violence Against Women Act. Because I think he recognized to some degree that he had failed people in that moment.
2: Biden made one presidential bid in 1988, then another in 2008. But in the meantime, he served nearly 40 years in the Senate. So when you look across those decades in politics, Evan, do you see Joe Biden as a real political leader? You know, or or do you think that actually what he's been is just a very acute and thoughtful follower? You know, I guess what I'm asking is, has he led America and his party over that time in significantly new directions that you can point to? Or do you think that his approach has really just been to place himself where the country and where his party have needed him to be? At any given moment, and and he is responsive in that way, but not necessarily proactive.
1: You know, his defining characteristic as a politician has not been to be at the vanguard of historical change. It has actually been to find that center position, to be the centrist in his own party, to find where the middle of the Democratic Party is and to evolve with it as somebody who worked with him said to me, Joe Biden has been almost a perfect weather vane for the center of the party. And I think what's interesting about that is it's easy to hear that and to think, well, that just means that he's a kind of passive figure who waits for moral change to happen and then plays catch up. But I think if you look at his career, what you also see is that he's motivated by this pretty deep belief that compromise can be a path to progress, that you actually can find a way there if you're dealing with a politics that, has, that are as contested as they are. What I mean literally is, I think he sees himself somewhat in the tradition of LBJ, who was, after all, not the hippest, wokest member of the Democratic Party, but of course was the one who achieved the greatest... Progressive social legislation of post war America. And he did it, in fact, in ways that younger, more dynamic, more progressive people couldn't do it. It, John F. Kennedy was not able to do what LBJ was able to do, partly because LBJ had the skill of working the levers of Congress and of politics. And Also, because when you come at it from this position, this moderate position, sometimes you can actually sell ideas that a more overtly progressive politician can't.
2: So one place I can think of where it does seem like maybe he stepped out ahead of his party, or at least where the center of his party was at that moment, was with gay marriage. What drove that?
1: Yeah, that moment was just incredibly revealing in its way. I mean, this was in 2012. Barack Obama was preparing to signal a change on gay marriage to come out in favor of it. And it was this very carefully calibrated process. Uh, and it was an election year and they wanted to make sure that they rolled it out, to use the terrible political cliche, in exactly the right way. And they had exactly the interviews planned and they knew what he was gonna do. And then Joe Biden got out there and had an interview on Meet the Press and he was asked about gay marriage. And he came out first and said, yeah, I'm in support of it. Is that what you believe now? That's Are you, what I believe. And you're comfortable with same-sex marriage now? I, I Look, I am vice president of the United States of America. Um, the president sets the policy. I am absolutely comfortable with the fact that men marrying men, women marrying women and heterosexual men and women married are entitled to the same exact rights, all the civil rights, all the civil liberties. And quite frankly, I don't see much of a distinction uh, beyond that. It's tempting to, to look at that and say, well, that's a case of Joe Biden making a classic kind of gaffe, saying something he shouldn't say, except that it's not. This actually was a perfect demonstration of his political instincts. He saw that the Democratic Party was evolving. Americans were evolving, changing on this and he wasn't going to get left behind. And so he moved with it. But that's an interesting subtlety because it's not that he's the guy at the ramparts who's leading change. In a way, what he's doing is validating change. He's giving it a name. He's making it safe for moderate and conservative Democrats. And I think in that way, it's one of the indicators of how he has been a reflection of a kind of politics that is not always in the headlines because reporters gravitate to what's new and what's different, what's young and dynamic. But he represents a politics that actually still makes up most of what the Democratic Party is today and, and in many ways what the United States is today.
2: You talked a bit before about his style of working with other politicians, but tell me also what his relationship is like with his staffers.
1: He's known for a few things among his staff. One is that he has this pattern of having identified people who have no particular prominence or background. They might not be coming in with a lot of connections, but if he sees a talented outsider, he often will kind of reach down and grab that person and give them a lot of responsibility. And so throughout the high ranks of democratic politics, it is peppered with these people who were identified by Joe Biden and then sort of elevated. And he can also be kind of curt and demanding with his staff. We don't often see it from the outside, but he expects a lot from them. He wants them to help him succeed. He asks them for a lot of preparations before he makes calls to foreign leaders, before he does things in public. He wants to know that he's going to he's gonna look right. He's going to look smart. One thing that you hear from people who have worked closely with him is they sometimes get offended by the fact that he will be more interested in some random stranger on a rope line who wants to talk to him about something than he will be with the staffer who's been killing themselves to help keep him in office all these years. I think after so many years in office, he really doesn't know what it feels like not to be in office. That can lead him to sometimes take people for granted around him.
2: With his election, Biden joins the ranks of a number of other presidents who served first as vice president. How do you think that that influences the kind of leader we will see Biden be in the White House?
1: I think it's hugely important that Biden served in the vice presidency in terms of shaping how he sees that partnership of a White House. Biden came to believe that the vice presidency is only the job that the president makes of it. If The president wants a vice president to be important and to serve a valuable function, then it's possible. But if not, then it's it's a waste. What Joe Biden will be looking for from Kamala Harris in the vice presidency is somebody who will be, number one, loyal and supportive of that enterprise, wanting them to succeed as a pairing rather than trying to build the pathway to her own political future. And I think it'll also mean that he's going to be looking for ways in which she can do things that he can't do because he knows that a a white man in his eighth decade is probably not a perfect bridge to the next generation of voters. And she can speak for them in a way that he simply cannot. But one thing he won't expect her to do, which he did for Obama, is be a bridge to Capitol Hill. He sees himself as probably the world's greatest bridge to Capitol Hill. That's his own self-narrative. And I don't expect that he will give that up.
2: What do you expect to be the biggest questions or themes of a Biden presidency, the ones that you'll be watching most closely?
1: Well, I think the most interesting theme is that he has spent his political career as a centrist, as somebody who believes in incremental change. And sometimes you take a step forward, sometimes you may lose a step, but you're steadily inching along. And now he finds himself at this moment in American political history in which incrementalism is really not an option. I mean, the country is in a crisis of multiple dimensions. I mean, there's the COVID pandemic. There is, of course, the economic recession. And then there are all of the underlying issues that he would have had to deal with anyway. Things like radical income inequality. And it's part of the reason why he ended this campaign in language that was very different from the way he started it. He ended it by saying he wanted to be the most Transformative president since FDR is how he put it in a phone call to Bernie Sanders. And I think the challenge for him will be to take his political instincts, the weight of his own legacy and his own learnings, and figure out how to also be somebody who is able to meet the challenges of these incredibly demanding and really urgent problems. I think there are some issues on which Biden is set up to be more transformative than on other issues. Things like climate change, for instance. I think he recognizes that that's something that he and the Democratic Party can push aggressively. But I think there are going to be harder problems for him. Like, what do you do about health care? Can he, in fact, have a public option added on to Obamacare? And will that be enough? Or will the public be pushing for him to go further and to go for Medicare for all? And certainly the left side of his own party will be pushing for that. So I think you're going to see that one of the major themes is going to be how he contends not only with this very hostile Republican Party, but also a lot of pressure that he's going to deal with from the left end of his own party.
2: Final question. What does it tell you... Not about Biden, but about us and our country and where America is right now, that as a nation, we've elected Joe Biden, the next president.
1: The election of Joe Biden is, in a way, a reminder that there are elements to politics that are not just about the horse race and the horse trading and the sort of raw political calculations of interest groups and identity groups. That on some basic level, voters out there looked at this person who had been through hell in his own life and had come through it and had come to believe that there's something to that, that character in its own way does matter in politics. And I think the election of of Joe Biden is, in a way, an affirmation that people still believe in the possibility that they might find some common ground with one another. I mean, the word empathy, I think, gets overused in politics. But it is a little bit like this gene that lies in our political culture, and it's kind of gone dormant for a while. And what he's done in his campaign and just in his biography is to try to lift that back out and say, we're not as we're not as angry at each other as we might think we are and we might in fact be able to find some way of talking to each other
0: Evan Osnos is the author of the book Joe Biden The Life The Run and What Matters Now Lillian Cunningham is the host of the podcast Presidential There is an episode about every US president go check out the archive at washingtonpost.com/presidential It's great for holiday road trips or a cozy day at home That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Renny Svarnowski is our associate producer. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. We are taking a couple days off for Christmas. We hope that you're safe and cozy wherever you are, whether you celebrate or not. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.
2: Hey, this is Christina Quinn.